Well, Father Aaron, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you and share in the joy of your flock, your people, the people that God has given you to be concerned about and to guide. Thank you so much. I have few joys in life, um, like opening up God's Word and uh, sharing it, and at times um, experience and the text of Scripture come frightfully close to each other. Um, and this really uh, gives me quite an opportunity to explain what many of the Psalms are doing. In the Psalms, we have expectation, we also have experience. We have expectation of what our faith has taught us legitimately to look for, to lean into. We also have experience of what has happened, of what happens. And so when it comes to the Psalms, there is a beautiful reality in which they can teach us how to be honest with God. In fact, even in a Psalm like 73 with Asaph, Asaph is going to say some things that we haven't been able to. And so it's great to learn, really, at the feet of Asaph, who took his own experience and made a lesson of it for the entire temple. What is lament? Well, lament in some ways, and this is in part what 73 is. 73 is a combination of wisdom and lament. There's elements of deep, uh, spiritual, uh, even philosophical pondering that Asaph is going to do. There's also aspects of lament he's going to engage in. And the Psalms in lament allow our hearts to break in two, and yet God can teach all the pieces to sing. When it comes to Psalm 73, we find Asaph, who was a minister of music. Asaph knows the temple life. Asaph knows about the people of God. He knows about the call of God. He knows about the requirements of God. But where we find lament is where our expectation and our experience don't meet. There is a gap that we typically live in. There is typically a yawning gap between expectation and experience. That yawning gap is what we offer to God as lament. There is more truth in honest doubt than there is in a habitual recitation of the great creeds. And we find in Psalm 73, Asaph is struck immediately with a crisis in his experience. 73 then is about this illusion of wealth and stability and yet nearness to God. It is always easier to say, God, you didn't show up, you let me down, I'm done. How do you take your pain and lean into the great history of your faith? That is hard. Asaph is not going to run from God, but he is going to ask some tough questions. In fact, this has led me to... As I often do, write prayers when I study passages, and I would begin a prayer this way in 73. The psalmist claims, surely God is good to those who are pure in heart, 
but surely our expectations and our experiences have shred our faith. They have numbed our vision, they have fractured our world and paralyzed our families. In pain or pride, we know not which, we have become both leader and laity soured beyond service. So take our fear of failure and bring calm through your tender yoke. Take our default toward technology and overwhelm us with your communal shalom. Take our youth in protest and wash them as heralds of healing. Take our culture of tirade and redeem the frenzy toward acts of mercy. Take your church, leader and laity, and mature our doubt into dependence, our guilt into grief, and our pride into a pain that welcomes mystery once again. In Psalm 73, Asaph admits some things we're afraid to. If you have your Bible open or you want to look at the program in front of you, please do so. We're going to have a wonderful feast in the Psalter. I tell my students regularly, if, if I learned Hebrew for no other reason other than to live in the Psalms, it would have been worth it. And here we have a meal in front of us. Asaph begins with a creed of sorts. He begins with a theological affirmation. We could call this a general premise. Surely God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. Here's where we need to understand the rest of the structure of the psalm. In verses 2 through 12, he's going to give us a portrait of the wicked. Following that initial theological affirmation, we're not sure yet if he believes it or if he's, he's taunting with it. He then moves in verses 2 through 12 to a portrait of the wicked. And then in 13 through 17, he talks about his reaction. He talks about his reaction to this state where the wicked seem to get a free pass. Finally, in 18 through 28, we have a personal resolution. In 18 through 28, a personal resolution. There are three times when he begins, as he does, with surely in verse 1. I'm going to give you a bit more of a, um, of a feel of the road here. Surely God is good to Israel is repeated in verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Finally, verse 18, surely you place them on slippery ground. Notice the contrast he immediately acknowledges. Here's the lament. Here's the expectation of verse 1. And then the experience of verse 2, and I love his honesty, but as for me. Now look at all the personal pronouns. My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You got to know in Jewish culture, this was difficult at this time. If I obey you, God, and I'm consistent and I'm forthright toward you, you're going to bless me, right? You're going to bless me. 
And I'm, and I'm going to proceed on the, on, on, the, on the understanding that if I lead a wicked life, you're going to call me out. But I'm seeing a lot of wicked people, Asaph is saying, and you're not calling them out. Asaph is talking to us about a crisis of faith. Between the expectation and experience is the gap we offer as lament. And that gap for most of us will be a crisis of faith. Where do we go? Verse 3, for I envied the arrogant. Look at his honesty. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In verses four, in verses really 2 through 7, he's going to talk about what he sees. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to Man, and they're not plagued by human ills. Does this sound a little bit like an exaggeration? Ah, when we're caught in the middle of that gap, what do we typically do in our faith? Yes, Asaph is involved in a downward spiral, and let me, uh, let me mention something that's happening here. He begins with a suspicious statement of his own heart. He's getting very suspicious. He admits that he envied. He admits that he was, frankly, lost in envy. He's looking around too much. This then leads to a temporal cynicism. A temporal cynicism. Finally, we're, we're, we're into full-blown exaggeration. Full-blown exaggeration. Look where the text goes. Verse 6. Pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Uh, subtext, where are you, God? Or am I just the only one seeing this? Pride is their necklace. Here's where you find wonderful metaphors. If you enjoy metaphors and artistic expression like this, eat your heart out this summer. Okay, this isn't about, this isn't about scientific precision. It is about the reflex and the pulsating of a poetic heart. And only the Psalms do it this way. Pride is their necklace. It centers them. It's the first thing you see. Finally, he says, from their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. Asaph is a minister of music. He sees these people every week throughout all kinds of festivities and liturgies and practices and, and even music. And he's being shredded by the dissonance between expectation and experience. The final stage of his, of his slide is the loss of self-critique. The loss of self-critique. It's all right to criticize, as long as we love that which we criticize. In verses 8 through 12, he moves into what he heard. Before I get there, I, I want to mention something recently in um, the latest edition of First Things. Mark Barnes has written a fascinating little piece. It's an expose on a, on a culture of, of smartphones in which he calls the click fix. Some of you read this? He has some... Stunning insights. 
He's talking about how we try to capture in a little phone what we, what we no longer have patience to contemplate. He makes this observation. The outside thing deemed significant is taken in and stored. If the paintings we're looking at remain inscrutable, if beauty refuses to show her face to the eye trained on the arousing, the useful and the entertaining, then we will outsource our affectivity, our emotion, to a technology. We achieve through the lens what we cannot achieve through the heart. We achieve through the lens what we cannot achieve through the heart. Do you know six different times Asaph is going to talk about the journey of the heart? Did you see that in Psalm 73? Heart's going to be mentioned six different times. Stunning line. We achieve through a lens what we cannot achieve through the heart, a moment in which the object penetrates and changes us according to its own value. Mm, now who's defining who? Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. With malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Speech is very important in wisdom literature and scripture because words are the defining human act. They expose the kind of person we really are. Guard your heart, says Proverbs, for from it flow what? The issues of life. He's shredded by what they're speaking. Oh, another beautiful thing emerges here. If you go back to verse 1, here is our first note of community. One of the things that helps us heal from the crisis of the gap is community that shepherds our heart, that reminds us of God's truths, that pulls us back into the communion of the faithful. Verse 1 is the first note of community. Surely God is good to Israel. We're going to have the second note of community in verse 10. Let's look at the lead up to it in verse 9. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. They proclaim their own deeds and their own ambitions. Not original or creative, but it's always frightening to observe. Second note of community, therefore his people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Asaph is saying, Lord, look at your own people. They're getting so distracted that when they see the wicked and the arrogant talking like this, I can't keep tabs on the discipleship struggle of your own people. They're leaving to something that sounds better because they're leaving to something that sounds possible. Between expectation and experience is a paradox. Is a paradox. Faith without doubt is myopic. Faith without doubt is myopic. But doubt without faith is a slow slide into existential meaninglessness. 
It's community that enables us to follow and live and heal through the gap. Remember when that man was let down through the roof because there wasn't an entrance to the house, right? Jesus was teaching. Oh, it's a beautiful thing that happened to them. The text says, when he saw their faith, he healed him. When he saw their faith, he healed him. One of the most dangerous things we can do when we're living in the gap of lament is we isolate ourselves because nobody else understands. That's that's an understandable feeling, yeah. But there are people that understand. They actually believe for us in very deep and complex ways. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink. Asaph is mortified that sin not only is well paid, it's well thought of, and the little sheep are running after others with a better sounding message. This is the only time when we actually get an embedded quote. It's so bedevils Asaph, he quotes them. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? They deny his awareness, not his existence. If he is there, he doesn't care. It's easy to say that in great pain, but we need people around us who can affirm us in silence in a ministry of presence. The second surely comes in verse 13. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. Oh no, this is, this is really sad because here he functionally denies what he said in verse 1. Is it worth it to serve God when most of your life feels lived in the gap? In vain I've kept my heart pure. He feels that that, that his pure heart should lead to an overt show of God's goodness. Does the right orientation of the heart matter to God? He's not feeling it. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. Keep in mind, they never have any ills. They don't even get a rash. They don't even wake up on the wrong side of the bed, right? And he says, I'm plagued 24-7. It's understandable when people are hurting. I love this. Look at the third note of community. If I had said, oh, here's his second quote. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. He's saying, it's my turn to talk about my pain. And if I had gone off and I had my crack at the blog... Why are you laughing? Because you feel it too. It's your turn. Not for the leaders, it's not. 
not your turn. Oh, it's your observation. It's your prophetic opportunity to seize the moment to absorb the dissonance and lean into a mystery you cannot fully understand. That's exactly where Asaph is going. It's my turn. And that is such a natural reflex when we're hurting, when we're living in the gap between expectation and experience. It's my turn. I've heard them speak, can't I? No, others may, you cannot. Others may, you cannot. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. When I tried to understand this, it was oppressive. It's the same word as burden in verse 5. It was burdensome to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. We're not sure what he saw. We just know where it occurred. He's a minister of music. God used his own place of ministry. He might have heard a lesson from a Levite. Maybe it was, a, it was a father that was sacrificing a, a, an animal and the little child stood back in horror as, as blood splattered all over him. Whatever it was, something happened in his place of work and ministry and it began to turn his heart. Then I understood, here's your third and final surely. Surely you place them on slippery ground. Uh, This is interesting. Whereas Asaph was on slippery ground in verses 1 through 3, and the wicked were secure, now the wicked are on slippery ground, and Asaph is going to be secure. The whole thing is moving, but it moved in God's time. That is so hard. That is so hard. And God understands. He will remain patient. He will wait for you. God is not offended by the dissonances we feel. The question is, are we going to adopt a surrogate narrative that feels good for a moment, for a little while? Or are we going to lean into a mystery we didn't craft, but where God has proven himself faithful? If Asaph looks back at history and all the psalms that have been written before him, what kind of God does he see? A God who never says, I can't believe you talk to me that way. Don't you know where I sit? I'm way up here, you're way down there. How dare you talk like that? Find one place in scripture where God ever calls somebody out for being honest. You'll never find it. No, no, he realizes something different here. You cast them down to ruin, how suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away. Uh, completely swept away. By definition, suddenly, in, in, in Hebrew culture and thought and cosmology is always abnormal. It's what's expected that I'm expecting. But no, suddenly, God does something unusual. 
like a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Uh, He goes back to reflection. This is so beautiful here. It's at this point he starts talking to God, not about God. What's your language like? The reason why laments are not popular is because pain doesn't sell. But every time you launch into the Psalms, you find the beautiful heights of praise which mean something because they're a neighbor to pain. Pain and praise, two sides of the same scissors. Which side cuts the paper? Exactly. Really, you can't have one without the other. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. I love it. God has always been with him. The realization, the epiphany for Asaph is is to say that I'm always with you. Later on in the same article, Click Fix, the author makes these observations. He says, this persistent tendency of our time, its infatuation with all things smart technology, each app and innovation promises us control stymieing our experience as passive recipients until godlike in our control we become machine-like in our hearts godlike in our control we become machine-like in our hearts asif would agree unfeeling satellites in an age without meaning Orbiting a significant planet without the capacity for surrender required to even participate in its life. He ends with a stunning observation. To indulge a replacement instead of a reality eventually coronates the replacement as the new reality. Oh my. The replacement becomes the new reality. Where's our hearts this morning? If I were to give you a three-by-five card, I would have you write on it. My heart is in danger of this new attachment. What is it? What is it? Pain does that to us. It's understandable. It's even normal to a degree. But take your pain and lift it up in the gap to God. That's your lament. And God will be patient. He ends with a beautiful observation. He says, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will preserve me with honor 
kavod in Hebrew, against all the slander and this toxic speech I'm hearing, you're going to preserve me against that kind of social onslaught. Asaph is not an escapist. He's not waiting just to head to glory and get out of here. That's not what Asaph's talking about. It sounds that way in English. But the Yoda reality of the Hebrew here is a bit closer. It's just an odd expression to our ears. You will preserve me with honor. Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth. Now look at this. Look how far he's come. My flesh and my heart. Told you it's mentioned a lot. My flesh and my heart may fail. I love it. Did Asaph receive a massive 180? No. No. But he sees his gap differently. It's a different perspective. It's a different perspective. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Quick observation on that word portion. The Levites were the only ones. Asaph is a Levite. He's a clan that works in the temple. The Levites were the only ones that could own no property. They were distributed as God's gift to the people. And they lived off the generosity and the tithes of the people in the temple. Asaph could own nothing. He's been slain by envy. At the very end, he states what God has already stated several times in the Pentateuch. I will be your portion. Without house, without land, without, without flocks and fields, the Levites were distributed as paramedics for the spiritual health of a nation. Now we see part of why he was envying. You, he says, God, are my portion. But it's been a crisis getting there. It's been a crisis. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. He's learned something very significant. There's a wealth of a different kind. There's a fellowship and a realm of relationship that is a different kind of currency. Some currencies purchase buildings. Other currencies sanctify and fill them with the words of God. Don't collapse all currencies into one modality. A healthy, vibrant, growing body of Christ is filled with brothers and sisters who understand there are different kinds of currencies. I know some missionaries that struggle to come back because their hearts are torn by creeping materialism. And the currency that they have and the little that their children know I teach them year in, year out. 
I see the struggles of the MK. No one really seems to care about their currency. Show me a missionary on a church board. I'm glad that's not God's economy. But as for me, oh, he takes several phrases. The as for me goes back. We have a grand book ending with, with verse 2. It is good that's verse 2 again. He, he's gone back to his original station and, and, and gap. It is good to be near God. That's also verse 2. See, look at, look at verse 27, line A. Those who are far, yeah, but I'm near. They will perish. Yes, but it's good to be near God. And he's making contrasts. Look at the final lines. I have made the sovereign Lord why is it at the end of the psalm where he says, God Almighty, why is it here that he says, Sovereign Lord? Oh, brothers and sisters, there is a fruit that emerges from deep pain and disillusionment. Though his station hasn't changed per se, he's learned to value the presence of God in a new and refreshing way. I have made the sovereign. Now it's sovereign. I will tell. Here is the fourth and final note of community. I will tell. Oh, he does speak. But when he speaks, what's changed? Now it's not just about his pain. Now it's about his pain and a sovereign God. Now it's time to speak. Now it's time. I will tell. There was a time when I couldn't. Now I will. I will tell of all your deeds. There are at least three myths that this psalm dismantles. Myth number one, suffering is about my life, not others. Oh yes, uh, your life might be at the core, but your suffering is never private. It's never private. Honest reflection is what helped Asaph because he admitted brokenness. I was a brute beast. Myth number two, silent resentment is better than vulnerable honesty. Silent resentment is better than vulnerable honesty. No, it's not. Silent resentment can also destroy us from the inside out. No, what did Asaph do? He leaned into communal concern, and that shaped his ethics for those he led. I could have talked like that too. Think twice now. Think twice. What is nourishing? What is nourishing? There's a third myth. The deeper my walk with God, the less the disillusion. I'm sorry, but I have too much respect for paradox. The deeper our walk with God, the greater the disillusion you may feel. 
Because in your life and in my life may be a trophy, an expose of what it means to lean into a God you can't easily define. Whom else should God trust but those in such pain to give testimony to him? How did Asaph do that? Here we see Asaph in a redefinition of portion. God is a clarifying presence. God was a clarifying presence. And that's what Asaph saw. So I close with that prayer I began. Like Asaph, we crave your presence that is more tenacious than our envies, that holds us by your strong hand, that guides us in refreshing counsel, that exceeds the strength of broken bodies, that gifts us with portions of yourself, that schedules justice for a better time, that gathers the shards of our life and then weeps with us in our story-making. Replace social fractures with your justice for new orphans and widows. They are still with us. Heal paralyzed families with your shalom for the new wounded and frightened. They are still among us. Restore the spiritually apathetic with your decisive light for the disillusioned and distracted are still searching. Steal our hearts away to their rightful home. In your love and suffering, they are still prone to wander. Surely this is our prayer, for these struggles remain our lived experiences. Surely your healing presence will outstrip our gnawing pain, for we know your reputation. Surely we are seduced by other portions and need the reminder of your rest of poverty. Surely we will proclaim all your deeds, for they are your testimony of rescuing love. Surely we have made the sovereign Lord our refuge, for we know there is no other God, no other grace, and no other gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the opportunity to sit with Asaph, to feel the gap of his struggle, to sense the tensions between what he knew and what he felt, to feel the real struggles of portions gone awry, of surrogate attachments that strip hearts away. I ask, Father, for my brothers and sisters here that you would guide hearts, that you would strengthen your leash on their mind and their commitments. I pray for Father Aaron and his leaders that you would give a prophetic love as well as a prophetic arm to hold as well as guide. May you be honored 
in this congregation. And Father, may you see many come through the gap. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.